My name is Sherry Rice, and I am CEO of Access to Healthcare Network. Welcome to our podcast, Access to Health. Our goal is to bring you informative speakers from the healthcare industry to give you information that can help you make your healthcare decisions. Today, we are talking about ending the HIV epidemic and living with HIV. And my guests are Alicia Barrett, Manager, Clark County Social Services, and Angela Smith, Executive Member of the Ryan White Part A Planning Committee and a 29-year survivor. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for having me. Thanks yeah, for this having is us. fabulous. Alicia, let's start with you. Um, this is your second time on our podcast. The first podcast that we did, we specifically talked about ending the HIV epidemic. I think it was a fabulous podcast. Um, lots of information on it. What I'd love to do, if you don't mind, is spend just a few minutes and recap some of that. We talked last time about ending the HIV epidemic, and that's a a national focus. Is that right? That is. It is a a new initiative that um, was recently put out uh, by President Trump, and there's actually a notice of funding opportunity that um, Health and Human Services at the federal level has issued to 48 different counties in the nation that are that have a high incidence rate of HIV, and we are one of those counties. Um, Clark County is? Yes. Sorry, Clark County is one of those counties. And why do you think that is, Alicia? Well, we have a very high incidence rate right now. We, um, we have increased our testing availability and the number of people who are getting tested. And one of the outcomes of that is the number of increased um, people that are tested positive. So people who are need services and may have been positive for uh, um, months or years and just didn't have the opportunity to get tested and now have, and and now we are helping them and identifying them and working to ensure that they are on medications and, and in medical care. So when we say it that Clark County is one of the counties with a high rate of, is it new HIV or a high rate overall of diagnosed HIV? A high rate of new HIV, so newly diagnosed individuals, people who have just gotten tested in like the last year. Got it. And 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 it's a little chicken in the egg there. Is that because testing's more available or because more people are contracting HIV? Uh, it, it could be a combination of both. I know for sure that there's more testing available. Um, we are working right now to really ascertain where or why the numbers are increasing, but I, th- I know for sure um, in the last couple of years we have increased the availability of testing and where you can get tested. So I, I don't know if it's also more individuals are becoming infected or if we're just doing a better job of um, identifying places for people to get tested and they're doing, they're, they're taking advantage of that. Got it. Well, since we're on the discussion of testing, do you want to tell the people that are listening in Clark County where they can get tested? Sure. There are many places you could go for testing. Um, The Gay and Lesbian Center has testing available. The Southern Nevada Health District has testing available. You can get tested if you go to the University Medical Center emergency room. You can get tested. There is testing available at many nonprofits or community-based organizations in in the Valley. Um, I think the best is to go to the Southern Nevada Health District website and and look at where the different testing is available. Or even on the LasVegasTGA.com website, there is 
uh, area where you can put in your zip code and it will show you the different places you can get tested um, that are local or close to you. And is testing free, Alicia? Uh, at different places it, it is. At the places I just mentioned, it is free. Um, I would I would look for those places because it's definitely available free, but I'm sure some places charge, but there are many places you can go for free. So let's shift a little bit to prevention because if I remember correctly, that's been the focus for quite a few years on prevention. A great deal of money was put into prevention, a lot of education, and now we're talking a little bit more about early diagnosis and early treatment. Now, I understand we're not giving up the prevention piece of it, but the focus is moving to early diagnosis and early treatment. Is that right? That is correct. It, there has been multiple studies done that have found that at this point in HIV care, the medications are so effective and the side effects are so minimal that it, the best way to um, stop HIV spreading from one person to another is to ensure that once a person is diagnosed, that they are in treatment and on medications as quickly as possible. And, and if that happens, that person, the um, chance of them passing HIV to another person is greatly, greatly reduced. The faster they get a diagnosed treatment and medications, the faster that they become um, no longer at risk for passing HIV to another person. So in the last, would you say, five or six years is really where we've made the greatest strides on medication. And now, if you could explain to us a little bit, and then, and then Angela, we're going to move to you, because I think this all is a start to a discussion with you, someone who has been diagnosed for quite a few years, how things have changed. But Alicia, um, what has changed in the medications? I know that there's uh, Truvada, and that seems like that is, was a real breakthrough when Truvada came on the market. Right. When Truvada came on the market, it definitely made a big difference. And Truvada is actually the medication that went through some clinical trials and um, the FDA approved it for PrEP or pre-exposure pre -exposure prophylaxis, which is sort of like a, a medication you can take each day to reduce the um, risk of becoming infected. It's sort of like a you could compare it to birth control, um, and Truvada is that medication. But since that's come out, there have been, like I said, many advances in um, going to like one pill a day and just really reducing the side effects or the, the um, like the nausea and different things about taking the medications that was that was hard on a person's body. Those side effects have been reduced to the point that. Um, you are safe to start medications as soon as you're diagnosed and it's not so much waiting to see how sick you become or trying to weigh the side effects versus the benefits of the medications. Now the benefits are so great and the side effects are so low, there's really not a comparison. And that really has been, I would say, in the last five years. Well, Angela, if you don't mind, let's, um, let's move over to you. Thank you so much for being on the show today. But first, let me ask you about the planning committee for Ryan White Part A. You're an executive member. What is that planning committee for and what role do you play on it? I'm a member. Um, I just sat on the council. We put for as just helping other clients and just seeing um, where's the money spent and how they do it. You know, for as when Alicia and them get the money and they, we put the money in places and what 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 areas we should 
place the money high in far as like treatment and different stuff like that. So it sounds like, and Alicia, with Part A, there's um, there's an executive committee that literally do they give you feedback on where the money should be spent? They give feedback on treatment. Um, how how does that work, Alicia? Sure. So the part of the legislation of the Ryan White program is that there is a planning council, and part of that planning council is an executive committee. So the executive committee steers the planning council. And if you're on the executive committee, you're also on the planning council. And so Angelus is on both um, sections of, of our planning council. And what they are legislatively charged to do is to actually um, allocate the resources or the money per service category and prioritize those service categories. Part of the planning council's charge is to oversee the overall service delivery setup of the jurisdiction and ensure the funds are um, used appropriately and that the services of the individuals that are, are HIV positive are being met. So part of Angela's job is to review data and to um, ensure that the funding is being spent accordingly and as quickly as possible to reduce, you know, the need for services or to basically meet the needs of the HIV community. Um, and yearly they review priorities, like service category priorities, and they re they allocate the, the money for the following year. And then throughout the year, they if money has to be reallocated between service categories, they review all that information and then they make those uh, reallocations as needed. My goodness, Angela, that sounds like almost a full-time job. You were, um, you were diagnosed 29 years ago. That would have been around 1980. Nine. Um, 1990. Yes. So do you mind telling us about that, um, a little about how you were diagnosed, um, what that was like uh, 30 years ago? Because things are very different now. Will you share that with us? Yes, I will. Okay, I was diagnosed um, in 1990. I was four months pregnant with a set of identical twin girls. Working, um, never, you know, did drugs or none of that. And I tested positive for being HIV positive. So at this point, I got diagnosed in New Orleans. That's my home state. Okay. And I've been here um, the last 14 years in Vegas since Hurricane Katrina by losing everything. Um, my son was one of missing kids. But back to what you were saying for us, the diagnosis, it didn't have all the stuff we have now that I learned here in Vegas in New Orleans. You know, it was so much stigma um, down there. Um, then doctors really didn't know too much about the disease. It was a gay man disease. I was the only woman going to um, all-male clinic gay male clinic. I was the first woman. Um, and a I lot of people you see dying, you know, from the medications and, you know, the hard medications and stuff like that. Before as myself, I never had took medicines until I got pregnant with my last son at 42 years old. I took AZT. Before, they never gave me medicines or nothing. But that's before they start doing the viral load and the uh, um, CD4. I think they always did CD4, but they didn't do the viral load. So I always thought, I, I guess I was undetected because my kids came out negative after being treated for like three years or something. They had their own HIV doctor, a pediatrician. Um, 
Well, let me go back a little bit, Angela, and unpack that for us a little bit. Okay. So when you were diagnosed, you obviously the diagnosis was quite a shock to you. Oh, yes, it was. I mean, here you are pregnant with twins and um, and living if I'm if I'm hearing it right, um, a heterosexual lifestyle. So at that time, not considered a person at risk and you end up HIV positive. Right. Wasn't on drugs, never shot drugs. Um, it turned me to drugs, though, after finding out, you know, after my kids, you know, was born. But before they were born, the doctor told me I wasn't going to live to see them make five. So now I don't want to go back to work. I'm depressed. I'm, you know, in a shock. Like, I'm going to live yeah, to see my kids make five years old, you know. So your children were born, and they were uh, when they were born, they were not uh, HIV positive. No, they test them till they got three years old. Wow, boy, that that's a blessing, isn't it? Okay, and I didn't never. I guess every time bringing them to the doctor, maybe they might have gave them a little AZT. You know, they give them little stuff in the drop, but I never had to give the twins none. But I had to give my last son some, you know, like AZT drops and stuff like that. And Bobby had to do the AZT myself so it wouldn't get in his system, you know. But I never was on meds after that year of 2001. I never took meds no more until I got hit of Vegas in 2011. Well, if you don't mind if I go back a little bit more on when you were first diagnosed. So your mm -hmm. diagnosis is quite a shock. You have uh, your twin babies. And if I heard you right, you weren't on any medication put on any medication at that time or were you? No, I wasn't. Never. And and why would that have been, Angela? They weren't and maybe Alicia, you know what was happening thirty years ago. Um, we weren't giving medication then? Oh, I think it was because you know, it was a gay man disease back then. I guess they didn't know how the medication would work with women being oh, pregnant wow. and stuff because of the harsh, you know, stuff and how many pills they was taking and stuff at the time. Right. Oh my goodness, Alicia. So you really were a pioneer on this. Okay, so um, when ACT came out and in the 90s, the medications were very toxic. And so it's kind of what I was talking about before is the, um, the side effects or the toxicity of the medications were like right in line with the effectiveness of the medications or what it did to help a person um, combat HIV. And they were, you had to kind of choose like which one are you going to go for. And so at the time, it was not as simple as like get on medications. It was it was very toxic and it was very hard on a person's body, and especially a pregnant woman, uh, which is no not in any way where they are now. But in the '90s, that was one of the key issues. And as Angela mentioned, uh, most individuals that were infected were were men, and so there's you know a lot of different components of, of a person's body if it's a man or a woman, and especially if a person's pregnant. All of those different things. Um, where it came into play, and so I don't, the information available or the research done was, was, was much less in the early 90s. That's fascinating. So, so you had the twins, you were not on any medication, and how many years later did you get put on medication, Angela? Oh, okay, I had the twins in um, 1990. I wasn't put on AZT till I was, got pregnant and 2001 with my son and I was 42, 41 so, and a half years old then. So that's, um, 
10 about uh, that's a definite word on medication mm -hmm. did yeah. you were you feeling sick did you have uh symptoms what what was happening in that decade i wasn't having no symptoms um i wasn't feeling you know i just really was depressed at this time um going through the motions didn't want to go back to work because i had worked for the city of new orleans for 15 years um wind up turning to drugs like you know the old myths what they had behind hiv whereas you're gonna die you got your hair gonna fall out you know a lot of stuff you know had you just like um i guess depressed that's all i can say depressed yeah, yeah. you didn't want to do nothing you know yeah stuff like that so yeah it was and, really hard yeah no it sounds like you had a pretty tough decade there but they didn't have no education about it neither. So that's what the hard part is. You didn't have nowhere to go for education. They didn't have, you know, the stuff they have here today for as education, intervention, stuff like that. And half of the doctors that you go to back then didn't know nothing about HIV. Yeah. My goodness. Alicia, let me ask you, let's uh, switch a little bit to today. What kind of education would be given uh, to someone that had Angela's background. She finds out she's HIV, she's pregnant. Uh, today, what would we do for that woman? So um, if a, when a woman goes for her very first prenatal visit, one of the tests that are done as um, like a routine test is an HIV test. And so if the test comes back positive or if the individual is already aware that they're HIV positive, then um, immediately a nurse case manager at the health district is dispatched and, and will assist that woman through her through her pregnancy, ensuring that she, you know, attends the different medical appointments she needs to attend based on being pregnant and being HIV positive, and ensuring that that woman understands the, the medications she's taking, the purpose for the medications, and that the medications are taken each day. Uh, closer to the end of the pregnancy, the the individual and the nurse case manager will talk to um, the pediatrician, like an eight-year HIV pediatrician through UNLV School of Medicine. It's a, it's a maternal child and wellness clinic, and they provide care to um, children that are born to an HIV-positive female and to ensure that the child does not, it's called seroconvert, or basically there is a time frame, as Angela mentioned, once a child is born where they're called HIV indeterminate, and they do different tests and they monitor that, that child's um, health status to ensure that they don't seroconvert to HIV. They get different medications and they do different tests to, to follow this. And so the nurse case manager is going to explain this whole process to the, to the pregnant woman and walk them through it, make a warm handoff with the, this, um, this clinic that provides that, that care, and then follow up with the woman and ensure like after the child is born, that they are aware of what's going to happen next, that uh, child and maternal wellness doctor or that one of their nurses goes to the hospital and talks to the newly, the new mom of this you know, new child to explain what's going to happen next and provide all that kind of information and, and the, the risk or the, of, of, of breastfeeding or you know what, what's going to happen next. So there is definitely a, a very um, thorough education process through this whole the whole um, event, and in addition, if you know if a person is HIV positive, we have we work very hard to 
once they are diagnosed, we have a linkage coordinator or a team of individuals that will help that individual understand what the medications are for, the importance of taking medication every day, how important going to your doctor is, and just give information about what HIV is, what it's not, um, risky or different ways that HIV can be transmitted from one person to another and ways that it can't be so that, that people understand what's going on and the importance of medications, going to the doctor, um, trans, transmitting HIV from one person to another. There's, there's programs and key components throughout the entire HIV system that are put into place to ensure people understand what, you know, what, what's going on with themselves and the people around them. Right. My goodness, Angela, as I'm listening to that, all of that for a woman uh, that would be living today with your circumstances and everything that is available to her, and you didn't even have one bit of that. I'm, uh, I'm just in awe of what you lived through, and I'm also very sorry for it. Um, if you had had what's available today, and you know, it seems to me with HIV, the pioneers, as you were one, are the people that we learned from. And so your sacrifices to a certain extent is what makes it today possible for a woman in your circumstances to get all, practically all the support she could possibly need. And I'm sure that's why you have uh, dedicated yourself these last few years to making sure that no one else goes through that. Is that, that's what I'm hearing from you. Yes, that's right, Sherry. Um... I um, got a position with um, Southern Nevada Health District as community health worker, um, just to talk to um, people that come through the doors of being HIV positive. Like, you know, I'm a person that living with it, so I try to talk to all young women about it. You know, it's not a death sentence no more. Um, just stay in care and um, get your treatments, you know. They got a lot of women groups we have, and I be trying. I invite a lot of women's. Um, I'm in a couple of women groups here in um, Southern Nevada, like AFAN, COMC, um, Community Health, you know, counseling. Um, we do a lot of women groups, and you know, just support each other and stuff. Right. And I would like, and you know, I want to get to the clinic where the pregnant moms at to talk to them because I didn't had babies. You know, like my twins, they 29. Um, I had a baby that died of crib death um, in 94. She would have been 25. And my son, I had her, him at 41 and a half, and he 18. All my kids are negative. Well, let me ask you a little bit about, um, you know, 30 years ago or 25 years ago. <laughs> Did you share your diagnosis with friends and family? Um, what was that like for you? Oh, Lord. It was hard, Sherry. New Orleans, um, the South is very stigmatized. Um, Scared to tell your family. I went through my whole pregnancy without telling anyone. Um, I cried every day, just thinking about the doctor saying I wasn't gonna live till I make five. Um, see my kids make five. I finally told my mother after I had the twins when I was bringing them backwards and forward to the doctors. You know, and it was. I always put it as mental. It was mental too, stress, but I never told them HIV. Then I finally told my mother, and she says, "Just that's just something in your head," and then. Mama, I have four other sisters. I think I told two other sisters, and 
Never told the other two because my mother had five girls. Then eventually we come through Hurricane Katrina losing everything. I finally told the other two sisters. And just hearing the stigma, what people used to say about people with HIV, it was making me scared to tell them. I you know how they was going to feel or none of that. So well, sure, back, um, back then there wasn't enough education, both for anyone who tested positive, but certainly not enough for family members. Um, nothing. I never got yeah. an eight. A one-on-one HIV um, thing, none of that in New Orleans, nothing. I got all that here in Vegas. And if I would have known what I know now, what I learned in the last 10 years here in Vegas about HIV, you know, it'd be a, something different. I don't well, think I would have never turned to drugs, you know, never yeah. stopped smoking a cigarette, all this behind being HIV. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I hear you. And, and certainly your mother who was of a different generation also. Um, she probably barely knew what it was. And many times, I mean, do you remember back, of course you do, when people thought that you could get it from a toilet seat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, drinking from somebody or touching exactly. somebody. You yeah. know, they had the old mitts. And like I say, I didn't know nothing either. I didn't ever have no education on HIV. All I know is I was going to die. That's right. the only thing I ever, I have no nurse case manager, nobody, you know, no places to go, no help back then. Right. Can I ask you what your, what your sister's reaction was when you told them that you were HIV positive? Um, it was a, a whole different reaction than what I thought I was going to get. It was uh, cool summer, you know, very yeah. uh, affectionate. And then one sister that I told through Hurricane Katrina, I thought she was going to be the outcast sister, but she the one more loving sister. And my kids didn't even know. I have a daughter that's 42 years old, and she didn't find out till she was like 33, 34. Went to AFAN, and uh, someone gave us an HIV one-on-one to help me to tell my kids when I first got put wow. on meds here in 2011. And what was My kids was 21 child? years old when they wow. found out. I used to tell them I was going to mental health doctors and stuff like that. I always put it on mental health. Never told them right. nothing about HIV. Yes. And what was their reaction, Angela? Oh, Lord. I cried. They kind of cried. But it was, it was a warm reaction. They took yeah. it like, yeah. you know, nothing. I used to always tell them, stop drinking behind me because I'm still with the old mist. You know, maybe, you know. But after learning more here in Clark County, I really, you know, learned a lot. And I wish I'd have known this 14, you know, before I got here. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, I had more. Yeah, and, and certainly on a on a much smaller scale. Don't we wish we all knew uh, what we know then, now? What we know now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, that's a whole nother podcast. I yeah. we could talk yeah. for hours on that one. Yeah. Um, so. Let's talk a little bit um, about what's happening with the youth of today, both Alicia and Angela. We're, are we seeing changes with them? They obviously know that you can live with the disease. Are they less afraid to get the disease? Angela, I know that you work with a lot of people who are HIV positive. Are you seeing the youth as being um, less aware? Well, I don't see many youth. Um, I talk to a lot of people that's, you know, and counseling and stuff. But for as me, I always talk to my kids. I talk to my son. And um, 
just trying to get them aware of condoms and stuff like that. You know, you can't talk to kids in school these days. So I talk to my son friends because they basketball. I got my grandson. He play football. So when the kids come, I always try to talk to them. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like it's not what people think it is because always, you know, they put a face on HIV as you have to be a drug user. You have to do this. You know, the bad stuff, not saying you can get it from birth. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. A lot yeah. of people got it through blood transfusions back in the days, you know, and it's mm-hmm. just the way they think of people living with HIV. You had to be some kind of sex worker, your drug or something right. like that. So, yeah, so I'll be trying to let them know it ain't like that. Right. Um, which is some of the best ways to educate. Alicia, what, what are you seeing with the youth in Clark County? I would agree with Angela. I think some of the uh, concerns are, you know, HIV is a certain face or it's a sex worker or it's people, you know, blood transfusion and not realizing it. it you have to have safe sex, right? Condoms and, and um, harm reduction. So, if, you know, if, if you want to make sure that if you are, doing different things that you you are protecting yourself, whether it's using a clean needle, you know, if that's if that's where you are, or if it's making sure you use condoms. I think that HIV has been around long enough that youth today are, are just like, oh, that's just another chronic disease or a disease you just take medication for not really understanding the lifelong effects of being HIV positive. Um, and, and maybe seeing individuals who are positive and are very healthy and 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 doing a great, you know, doing great in their life, but not realizing um, what what that you know requires, right? Like medications every day, going to the doctor routinely, all of those all of those factors. And I think, in my opinion, when uh, when a younger individual just truly doesn't understand the the brevity or the the depth of what what an HIV diagnosis is, and, and it's a lifelong um, commitment to medication and taking care of yourself. So definitely, there's a concern about. Um, individuals understanding PrEP or like pre-exposure prophylaxis or even PEP, which is post-exposure prophylaxis and condom use. And, but I, I think the main thing, and PrEP and PEP are two things that um, aren't as widely known as they should be and could be. Although I would say there are many different avenues that are working to have that information available. In fact, part of the NDHIV epidemic um, funding initiative is to really push PrEP and PEP and the availability of those medications. And, and um, if your insurance won't pay for it, having uh, like a patient's assistance programs through the pharmaceutical companies that will help pay for those medications. Um, well, Alicia, do you feel that the dating apps um, in the last three or four years that have become so popular uh, have increased the uh, diagnosis, increased the number of new diagnoses? Yeah, I think that's definitely a factor. I think so. I think the um, availability of finding, you know, people to hook up with or or uh, do different things. Maybe you don't know much about that individual, or or you know, maybe you have a, a misconception of what HIV looks like, and and so you're not asking, or you're not protecting yourself, or you're not um, taking those different measures. Also, because you're young and don't see the point in all of those different things. I think there's so many factors, but yes, I would say um, the different apps and different social media aspects that are out there contribute to that for sure. Well, Angela, let me ask you, because if I have my uh, my facts right here, in, it, it was a good 10 years where you didn't take any medication um, after your diagnosis, so you weren't put on medication 
until 2001. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Is that unusual? I, I don't know enough. Is that unusual that you could, for 10 years, you didn't really have any symptoms? I, I think it's just, like they say, everybody DNA is different. Mm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I guess, I guess, um, Sherry, um, for us not being put on medication, like they, the medication back then was like made for men, you know, they had right, that. Right, right. So I guess that was one of the problems. And after I had the son in 2001, I, I never was put back on medication. I, I was doc, I was in a doctor regular. I had a good doctor down there, a lady huh. doctor. Um, her and my HIV, my HIV doctor and my GYN doctor were ladies and they worked together with high risk pregnancies and people living with HIV. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, they never were, they never would talk about the labs with us. See, I just learned about labs since I've been here. I got labs right here with me now. So I don't know if I was undetective at the time or what. I didn't know, you know, but I stayed in treatment, you know. And then after my daughter died in 2004, um, I got out of treatment a little while, a little while, a 94, 94. I got out of treatment a little while because um, I guess depression or whatever, but mm-hmm. then I got right back into treatment, you know, understand? So I was seeing a doctor regular because I made sure my kids see a doctor. Well, that's interesting. I think today, if I'm correct, um, patients know their viral load. They they know, don't they, Alicia? I mean, the, yes, I know now. Yeah, they know now. They, they, they see their labs. They're far more educated. The doctors are. There's a lot more communication patient, between yes. doctor patient, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. I would say all back then, um, you know, you were, you were just kind of in the dark. They have, um, I guess they communicated just with the doctors. They never communicated with the patients, letting us know where our status was. Around, like, I would say even from 1990 to, honestly, like, 2008, the focus was really on a person's CD4 count or the number of white blood cells in their body. A a viral load was really not on the radar. It was really more about a person's CD4 count. And in even 2000, I don't think that there was the understanding of the benefit of the person who's infected understanding their labs and knowing their numbers or knowing how health, like, what their their situation was and definitely in 2000, uh, 2000, 2000, even to 2005, again, the medications were so toxic that it was really what, what the protocol was, was to say once a person's CD4 count goes below 500, um, you might want to start meds. When it goes below 300, you might want to start meds. And when it goes below 200, then you're now diagnosed with AIDS. And it's truly just your CD4 count below 200. And that's what the AIDS diagnosis is. And now you're sick enough, or you have your HIV has, I guess, taken over your body enough that the medications are more effective than your body trying to like fight HIV on its own. And so that's why a lot of people wouldn't be on medications from the beginning. It seems so foreign to us now and so like crazy, but at the time it was really like choosing what's the best for that person's body. Is it these toxic medications, or you know, if their CD4 count is high enough. Their body's doing a good enough job, and we're just going to let it be until their CD4 count 
um, get low enough to make a difference. For viral load, people didn't even know what that was. There, it truly was not um, a standard test or something that was routinely told to the individual. And so around like 2008, um, it, it sort of became, it started to, the viral load started to really make a difference or a, a prominence in um, the testing. And then as the years have gone, in fact, the CD4 count, once you're newly diagnosed and you've um, been on medications for a couple years, they don't even do your CD4 count test as often as they, as they would in the beginning. It, it's something they do once every maybe six months or even a year, but it really doesn't show the, the um, how healthy your body is or how your body is fighting HIV like your viral load does. And so the viral load test is where it shows how much virus is in your body. And so when you're undetectable or you're suppressed, the amount of HIV virus in your body is suppressed or undetectable. And so the chances of you passing HIV to another person is greatly reduced, but you're also much healthier. So that's why that's well, always there. So let's turn to senior citizens with HIV because that's a little new. Uh, we have people um, in their 50s and their 60s, and I'm assuming in their 70s with HIV. Now, um, Angela, you've had HIV for 30 years, and do you notice as you get older, there being certain things that just have to do with aging that affect your diagnosis? Yes. One is memory loss. <laughs> <laughs> well, I your I'm jerks. right there with you. <laughs> the jerks, your jerks. But, um, you know, um, a lot of people, um, older people, because they mostly be married or how they say, um, they, they feel like they're not in that category. They have a certain category for us people with HIV. So they feel like they're not doing risky behaviors. They married. They But you never know what your partner doing on the outside. So a lot of people not getting tested because they feel like they in a marriage, which they could bring it home, you know, can be brought home to them. So it's a lot of things with older people testing now positive for HIV. Well, I think I read somewhere that um, some of the highest incidences of STDs are in nursing homes. Nursing homes, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. But, which, you know, on the other hand, you say, hey, great, you're in a nursing home, have all the fun that you want to have. But I understand what you're saying is that, you know, people still need to be educated and they need to be safe. So safe. Yeah. the stigma, they stigmatize, you know, HIV where I'm not a drug user. I'm not this. I'm married. I've been married for so many years. Whereas you don't know, you know, they're not using condoms and stuff because they think condoms is for conception for as a baby you know so they're not using condoms because they're not trying to have a baby or they can't have a baby but they're having you know sex without condoms and getting these stds and hiv well it's true i'm i'm i'll be 70 years old on my next birthday and my generation i'm not speaking for all of us but i will say mm -hmm. most of the people in my generation uh, condoms were not vastly used, and mm. you're right. If they were mm -hmm. used, it was so that you didn't have a child. Yeah. They weren't used as preventative. It was never in our generational discussion to use condoms. So if you have somebody my age in a nursing home or 75 or 80, uh, they weren't of the condom generation. Um, 
Even in my years, I'm 59, and in New Orleans, I wasn't never taught about condoms. Right, right. <laughs> oh, my goodness, my goodness. So, Alicia, um, what are we finding in the senior citizen category who've lived with uh, HIV for a very long time? What are the challenges there? I would say one of the big challenges are how does the HIV medication interact or work with a person's other medications, maybe diabetes medication or heart medication, different medications that that are routine or common when the person ages, you know, the older you get, different things like that. And, and as you mentioned, that some of this has never been done before, right? So it's like kind of figuring out as you go, what does this mean? How does, how does diabetes, um, insulin, and that kind of mean? How does it affect HIV? What is what is the process and, and ensuring that that individual understands how important still medications are, going to the doctor routinely, all of those standard things, but kind of throwing in memory loss and, um, and, and, and all the things that come, all of the joys that come with aging. How does that interact with HIV? And I think the biggest unknown is people don't know because this is the first time we've been there, especially kind of like for the medications, uh, like the level of the level of care that the medications offer, how does that interact with other, other medications? So, uh, Angela, today, uh, 30 years later, with the stigma different, and I'm assuming that, that the stigma is different today, how does that have you interacting with new people you meet or with your friends and your family today? Um, I still have a little stigma, Sherry. <laughs> Because uh, I have been saying I want to, you know, do podcasts and write my story. We go out and talk our story and interacting with new friends. I really don't tell too many. I just, I have a friend now, I, um, not a male friend, a good lady friend I met about a couple of years ago. I finally told her. And just, you know, me, I'll be reaching out to like more of my family down south. And I have a lot of nieces and nephews, and you know, down there is more high, you know, rate of HIV and um, AIDS and stuff. So, be trying to talk to my young nieces and great nieces and stuff. I'm not scared to tell them, you know, I'm HIV positive. Everybody be thinking I ain't, you know, oh, your hair ain't falling out. You always got your hair falling out or your skinny, or you know, the myths about being HIV positive. And I let them see it. It's a change now. You know, it's not like that, you know. But I'm on UMC um, Cab Board, too. I'm a secretary of that. So we're supposed to be putting out an ad for stigma here in Southern Nevada with um, UMC and some of the uh, members that want to tell a story or just want to be, you know, say something. So they're getting that together with that. So they're going to start running billboards and uh, putting up stuff like in uh, clinics and hospitals where they have these TVs, health shows where for a stigma. But it's still kind of high. Stigma is still high. Stigma going to be there. Um, I was scared a couple of years ago, not for myself, but for my kids because kids can bully other kids so bad in school. So I have my grandson and my son. You know, and I want, don't want them to, you know, be bullied or be, you know, shamed about your yeah. mama HIV. Uh, um, I can't come to your house. My mama say y'all gonna kill me because your mama got HIV. You know, stuff like that. Yeah. You know, understand? So it's still a little bit there, um, Sherry. It ain't. Yep. 
you know, you still have because you have to protect your loved ones. You understand what I'm saying? And I don't want my kids there in high school. I don't want them being bullied or people talking about them or, you know, stuff like that. Kids can be so rude these days. So I keep it at a minimum. <laughs> I still have a stigma. I hear you, Angela. Well, you, you know, you be scared about how people going to react to you. You know, understand you don't want to be uh, rejected or, right. you know, ridiculed behind being HIV positive. You understand? Well, I hear you. So, I'll tell you, you... You just moved into one of my heroes. Um, I'm uh, just in awe of the last 30 years for you and your courage and your persistence and your total commitment to yourself and your children. And then what you're giving back to our community. I just think that that's extraordinary. I'm sorry I'm not uh, in Clark County right now to meet you, but when I when I come to Clark County in October, I would love to shake your hand. I think... Um, Make sure you make sure you let Nick hook me up. Tell yeah. Nick to get in touch with me. We and will Nick. do that. <laughs> we will do that. Well, thank you so much for uh, being on this podcast, and thank you for the frank discussion. Um, we've been talking today about ending the HIV epidemic and living with HIV. My guests today have been Alicia Barrett, Manager, Clark County Social Services. And Alicia, before we close this podcast, can you one more time tell someone where in Clark County they can get tested? Sure. So you go to the LasVegasTGA.com website and you put in your uh, zip code or your address, it will show you the places available close to you. You can also go to the Southern Nevada Health District. You can go to the Gay and Lesbian Center. And you can also get tested at the UMC Emergency Department. Okay. And we've been talking to Angela Smith, executive member of the Ryan White Part A Planning Committee and a 29-year survivor. Angela, any last words for people listening? Please, please go get tested. It's best getting tested and getting on treatment. We're on a 90-90. Get tested and you equal you. Okay, I can't think of any better way to close this. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For a list of future podcasts, go to accesstohealthcare.org slash podcast.